Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I guess uh, I'll start by saying this. Um, there was a lot of talk before the men's tournament about how the conditions, 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 how the conditions would hurt or help these players and would they hurt Rafa? Would they hurt? Would they help Novak? And, you know, I mean, I think going into this tournament, you know, there was a lot of talk about the height of the bounce. I think everyone was talking about how uh, Rafa's ball wouldn't kick up that high. There was a stat that like 3.6 millimeters, uh, it's bouncing 3.6 millimeters less or something like that, which at, at, at that yeah. time I didn't read too much into it. And the first four rounds of Nadal and, and Djokovic at this tournament didn't really give me a whole lot of information. Just because of their level of uh, level of opposition, it wasn't until Djokovic played Hachinov and that, you know, Nadal was tested against Sinner, that I really started to get a little bit more information about how the tournament would shape out. But boy, I mean, I think we should start with the final because I think it was a match of of one-sided greatness, certainly in the first two sets, and it quite reminded me of maybe it was Rafa's ever best ever performance in his hundred matches. I mean, it's tough to say because he he did thrash Federer in, in the 08 final and it reminded me a lot of the Australian Open final actually that Djokovic won over Nadal in in uh, last year 20 months ago so it was just the other way around this time and I mean I'm not going to be able to add much be, to what you said because I've been writing all you, you we were thinking quite a bit alike again I mean yes first of all I was there just to get to your all your points I was there in, in 08 he played much, much better in this match than he did, did against Roger Federer in 2008. And he'd be the first to tell you that. When his career was not a knock on Federer. I'm just looking at the yeah. two performances. This was far superior because of who he was up against on totally. lot, for a lot of reasons. And, right, uh, right. So I do believe it was probably the best match he's ever played in, in the 100 and the, and the best final he'd ever played at Roland Garros. Conversely, what we have to weigh into it is, I mean... Yeah, look, well, he started he started so well everything was working from the outset and and you mentioned all those background factors by the time he got to that final and by the way when you talk about it was indoors indoors right but you mentioned about how there's all that talk in fairness to the media that talk was really largely emanating from rafa himself because he was so concerned conditions and he was making a big deal out of it. And and don't get me wrong, I am a big admirer of his. And I don't think he was in any way setting himself up for excuses or looking for yeah, alibis. Totally. And he was genuinely worried about how he would perform on that court in those conditions, not to mention the cold weather, which made it trickier again. You know, the he, he loves those hot days in, in late May and June when it's you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit and or high 80s, and he's sweating profusely. He loves that. And he doesn't like to play in the cold. And that, that again, slows things down even more. He wants all that hop on his forehand. So there were all these things swirling around his mind. But then you alluded to the fact that he got through those early rounds so quickly all the way up to Sinner. And right. Sinner tested him, and that was probably a good thing that Sinner served for the first set and probably should have won it. And had a break up 3-1 in the second and, and stayed with him right till 4-all. So that was good for Rafa to be tested a little bit. And then he followed up with a little bit of a test with Schwartzman, the first, you know, a war in the first set, you know, tougher than the scores would indicate, a 6-3. But he, you know, he got through those marathon games in, in the early stages and lost the serve once but got through it nicely, won the second and probably should have closed out sooner. But he still managed to stop Schwarzman from getting him into a fourth set. He sort of stemmed the tide by winning the tiebreak without losing a point. So he, by the time he got to Djokovic, I think he'd come to terms with the conditions. And he'd realize, you know what, maybe this isn't ideal for me. Maybe it's not the way I'd like it, but I'm playing fine. 
there's nothing wrong with how I'm playing. And I think he also realized, yes, he didn't get as much of the ball bounding up as high off the forehand. The stat I heard was similar to yours, was like three inches. Okay, that's significant, but it's not that big a deal. It still was a burdensome for his opponents, not to mention he, he maybe he flattened it out a bit more at times, and his backhand was so great the whole tournament. That he so much variety. He didn't need as much. Uh, he didn't need to hit as many inside-out forehands and depend on his forehand as much because his backhand was rock solid. As you said, variety, using the slice when he could. But my, what I loved the best was the, the sharply angle, which he started to do in the last few years, that angle sharply across, across the yeah. which is deadly. And, and players didn't ever used to have to worry about that from him. Now they do. So he had all that going from him. And then he, he had the perfect game plan. And, but, and, and, you know, I, I thought, you know, his forehand was, he was returning ex exceptionally deep and backing Novak up. He was, he was going down the line more off the forehand than he normally might. And, and still getting some nice high loopers up to Djokovic's back. And you'd see Novak jumping a few times to try to handle it. And he had a good serving day, good placement on his serve, backed it up. He, all that was that, that was entirely Rafa. What happened from Novak's side of the court, I can't fully explain. Because I thought yeah. his, I, I, I think he had been in really good form. I think maybe one of the factors for why he, he looked a little mentally weary and a little listless, a little flat in that final, was that he should have closed out Cispita sooner. Yeah, okay. He had two sets, two sets to love, five for a match point. He got very nervous trying to serve out that match. Why, I don't know. So, I, so that game, so uh, sorry to interrupt, but that, yeah. so you mentioned uh, this. Vansh, uh, Vansh, can, I, can I just uh, point out a few, uh, so just a little thing here just for a sec? Could you, because you, uh, his technique was going to be cut off from the podcast, because you and uh, uh, Steve are coming off through the same feed on my recording. So could you would you mind uh, just waiting a little longer to speak some some things? Oh yeah yeah uh, sure yeah sure. just no, just no. just for the sake of like a cleaner audio at the end of this yeah, yeah. thanks yeah. I'll just nod <laughs> where, where, where were we <laughs> perfect I'm sorry for no, the interruption right. it's just you mentioned his troubles serving yeah, right, closing yeah. it out so I okay I thought that Djokovic got very tight trying to serve out that match. He was in a perfect position. He'd won the first two sets, saved those nine or ten break points, and been really clutch. He broke Cispitas twice after Cispitas had 40 love leads in the second set. It's very unusual to break a player at that level twice when the opponents had 40 love, and yet he did it. And so he's very opportunistic, very confident, liked the way he was playing, serves for the match, just bungled that game, I thought. He played the whole game very tightly. And then the match point, a bit unlucky with his back end down the line. They couldn't quite curl it in, and he missed that wide. And next thing you know, he's lost. You know, he it was like so many opportunities got away from him. He had love 30 in the next game and didn't break. He had 30 love serving at 5-6 and didn't hold. And then that pattern continued in the fourth set. He went down the break, and then he had break points every time Cispet is served, but only got the one break back and finally lost his serve at 4-5. So... I think he was a little agitated to be in the fifth. The fifth went by quickly. Cispedes' legs were gone, but Djokovic had spent four hours on the court instead of what probably should have been two, uh, less than two and a half. And so that yeah. may be that that took something out of him, both physically and emotionally. It's hard to know because he just looked flat. And so even in the first game of the match, he won a couple of those drop shot points against Rafa and had 40-15, and he let it get away. And then... Uh, he had Deuce on Rafa serve, and Rafa held on. And that and it's kept going that way up to the point where Novak serves at love four, and he has 40 love, and he loses his serve from 40 love. So some of this was his own doing. And I, I didn't think he adjusted well to Nadal's game plan, and I think he sort of persisted with the drop shots, too many of them, uh, when he would have been better off to unleash that cross-court back and to try to be more the aggressor. But in fairness... Rafa was defending so well that day that a lot of Novak's best shots were coming back. And, and Djokovic commented on that afterwards, how he felt like shot, you know, he, these would have been winners against any other player. But Rafa was really stunning him with some of the defense because not only was he getting the ball back, but getting it back deep and making a Novak start. So to me, to get back to the conditions, oddly, they actually worked for Rafa in the final. Novak could not hit through the court. He couldn't seem to hit penetrating enough shots, I think he would have benefited from lighter balls and 
higher temperatures, just speedier conditions would have actually helped him to some degree. But it was a fascinating combination because you alluded to the to the 2019 Australian final that Novak won 3-2-3. and three, And that was one of his vintage performances. And we all realized that day it was Djokovic at his very best and a kind of subdued, slightly off-form Nadal. And then the combination of those circumstances, both matches, the the one in Australia for Novak that, that Rafa actually mentioned in the post-match ceremony, yeah. and then, then this one. I mean, but let's face it, it's inconceivable to, that he could win two sets, love and two, over someone as great as Djokovic. And I thought about yeah. it, love two and one, I think it was a lot of pride that sort of got Djokovic into it in the third, and a little bit of nerves from Rafa that helped uh, Novak to break back. But that was the only mm -hmm. time he broke him in the whole match, one break in three sets. That, yeah. that, you know, as a break back. Too. And a break back. So to me, that there were some things inexplicable from Novak's side. But it, the bottom line is it was a vintage Nadal performance and far better than he played at any in any other stage of the tournament. He was building up. He did. He played very well against Sinner and, and Schwartzman. But this was another level. And I think it even surprised him. But uh, it, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry we didn't get a closer match, but we did get to see it a gem of a performance from Rafa Nadal. Yeah, I mean, a lot to unpack there. I want to go back to uh, what you alluded to about uh, Nadal, uh, talking about the conditions. Um, I think, you know, he comes, a lot of people saw that as maybe making an excuse that, oh, if he, you know, if he didn't win this tournament, you know, it'd be kind of that he's a little bit apprehensive or a little bit, uh, you know, not confident in himself, but I didn't see it that way at all. I thought he was just laying the facts. I thought he was being completely honest. I think he likes to create, he talks a lot about doubt. I think one of the things that gets him going is is having that doubt in his mind so he can then problem solve and come up with solutions uh, to come up with these solutions. And I think you're right, the fact that it was indoors, I think that actually slowed down the court. The court was playing very slow, right? So I think that gave him a lot of time to really basically unleash on a lot of second serve returns. I think there was a stat like he made only, uh, he made, he got 61 out of 65 returns, first serve returns right. back right. in play, which is, which is, which is incredible. And he was getting them pretty deep. I thought it was an off serving performance, by the way, from Novak. I thought his, his, I mean, his first serve percentage was very poor in the first set. I want to say it was like 42%. And that first set, yeah, and he wasn't. Like he wasn't. I think it was 46. Yeah, and he wasn't winning any of the zero to four shot rallies earlier in the in the point because he just wasn't getting it close to the lines. He's normally such a great spot server, Novak, but that, but Rafa was. Exactly, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But that was that was exactly what I how I felt. The spot serving wasn't there at all. So he yeah. was neither. He was so. Sometimes he would go for something around 120, 121, get some speed on it, but not not nearly the placement he needed. And so normally, if you think of the matches he plays against Rafa, it's not that he's winning a ton of free points, but he's right. winning some. He's winning some free points, and the others he's setting up. He gets a short return that he can then demolish. Now it's to Rafa's credit that he had such depth on his returns, but part of it was that he really wasn't having difficulty reading where the serve was going because Novak mm -hmm. was not serving with the pinpoint accuracy that is his trademark. And that, in the end, may have hurt him more than more than anything that day. The inability to get some easy holds and the inability to finish off some points quickly on his own serve. It just wasn't there that day. Yeah. I think I have a, I, I a, a small theory in terms of uh, the yeah, level but... of those two. Uh, the one thing that I find is that Nadal, like as you mentioned, is a, is a vintage performance. Uh, when I was watching him play in the level of defense that he pulled off, I was, mm -hmm. I was amazed. I thought I was watching Nadal back in 2009 in the Australian Open against Roger Federer. Mm -hmm. The amount of running in balls back, it's, it was just unbelievable to see the, the level of defense that um, Nadal came around, like not necessarily pulling off uh, as much running because of his age. It was the knee problems and whatnot. He's trying to save his body for a little longer, which worked, by the way, really well. But the amount of defense that he pulled off, like I think Nadal prepared for this match to play against 100% Djokovic. And he was preparing to win. And I think he prepared mentally as, as well as physically. And he, he was ready to lay down everything on court. I find that he, he, he pretty much almost did that. Like, he, I don't think, by the way, that uh, that that Nadal was necessary to beat that Djokovic. Although I do, um, I do agree as well. Like in the in the third set as well, that um, Djokovic almost could have gotten to a to a fourth set there. And uh, I think that was really good from Nadal to show the the respect and to the the experience to to be like, 
this match isn't over until it's over. And he, would, he wasn't about to let uh, a champion like Djokovic, who has um, beaten him so many times, even on clay, um, to just claw his way back while not playing his best. And Isn't Nadal could see that probably very well, too. And one of the things that I, I think about the conditions is that maybe it was maybe these lower conditions were able to re, um, get Nadal back that step, that half a step that he lost yeah. over the years. And that's probably one of the reasons why maybe the defense side of it like uh, benefited from it. Maybe not so much on the attack, but the defense side of it probably benefited a lot more from these yeah, those conditions. Are all, than, yeah. Andre, those are all great observations. I wouldn't disagree with hardly anything you said, but I... Yes. The defense was as good as it's been in a long, long time. There were times when he seemed to, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd open stance forehands with arm extended, you know, balls that looked like going to get by him, and he'd snap them back deep, deep, deep down the line. And and, and the slice backhands, his, he, he was better than maybe he's ever been on defense against Djokovic. Uh, you're, you're mentioning early in his career in 09 against Rafa, but I don't think I've, uh, against Roger. I don't think I've ever seen him defend this well against Djokovic, certainly not in the last five or six years. So that was a big... Yeah. But in turn, what happened to the Djokovic Gumby defense that we all have lauded? So, it was there that day. So he, he actually did yeah, not... Yeah, so what I think about... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, yeah. Well, I was going to allude to something you mentioned earlier about that Tsitsipas patch. I think you're right that it, it took something out of him emotionally uh, more than it, you know, and a little bit physically too. I noticed that he didn't quite have the spring in his legs that he normally has in, yeah. the, in the final. I think he, you know, you're right. He wasn't chasing down a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, balls with the, with the Gumby-like defense and wasn't getting a lot of depth on them. He wasn't able to hit through the court at all. He wasn't penetrating the court. Like, why yeah. is it that he was... You know, and and it shows that he made fifty two. He made fifty two on four serves in the whole match to Rafa's fourteen. He had four more winners, but it just seemed like he was having to do a lot more to win these points. He felt that extra need to go fifteen twenty percent more, and I think we saw that in that third set when he came back from a breakdown. That was the only time that Rafa actually let up was at three two in that third set, where I feel like he missed a few first serves. He finally became human. He missed a few first serves. And he let yeah. and Djokovic mm-hmm. started stepping in. He wasn't using the drop shot as much. He was, he was using his his original tactic of going hard, deep, and flat uh, cross court with his backhand to the Nadal forehand, getting a few shorter balls because I think Nadal was finally sensing that he's on the verge of something really big and you know getting that thirteenth and twentieth and all that. And I think when Djokovic, that was the first time he let out any kind of emotion in, on on the court, which I thought was yeah. so yes. you know like. Normally, he's so emotive out there and, and passionate. He normally gets something going. Even if he breaks a racket or something, I know there's a lot of people um, in the media who don't like that. They don't like the, to see that kind of on-court behavior. But I think a lot of times it works very, very well in his favor. He's able to use that negative energy and convert it into something positive, and it really gets him going. And I was expecting him to do it. To be, I was expecting him mm-hmm. to do it after he lost that second set or somewhere. I didn't think it would take him two sets and a half. And I think by the time he, he broke... And, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I was expecting him to do it by the middle of the first set. I mean, this is one right. of the biggest matches that either one of them has ever played against each other. The historical consequences were immense, and, and they both knew it. Rafa knew he could get to 20. Djokovic knew he could get to 18 and close the gap. I mean, it, it, this was much more than just another French Open final, as big as the French is in, its, in and of itself. So, yes, he needs to emote. I couldn't agree more. Where which was the why, the signature why, defiance that I'm talking about? You know, like the 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 defiance that was that was missing. Yeah, right, that's him. Defiance is the word that, that defines him the best. And he didn't. Ha- he he was almost a little submissive, almost a little too. He was so flat that it was almost accepting of it. Now, yes, pride kicked in in the third set, but I honestly don't think he played that great. He picked up his level to some extent. And you're right. He flattened out some of those shots, and the back-end cross-court came alive. But normally, you're going to see him in those rallies hit three or four deep cross-courts and then then change the pattern and rip one up the line. And, you know, you're going to see him dictating more. And, you, and he, he feels like he's more in control. And he, he never felt that. I almost sense that even when he got to... Even getting to 5-4, you know, he didn't, there wasn't a lot of confidence. No conviction when he went out to play the next game. And then at 5-all, he didn't play a very inspiring game. And then even when Rafa served for the match, he was like, it's, this is over. It, it yeah. was a very passive Novak that day, no doubt about that. Maybe he was a little shocked by 
the Dow's level, but there was something psychically a bit wrong that day. Something was was off, uh, and and that that can happen. There's no doubt about it. I mean, look. Honestly, I, I when I when I was watching that match for for a lot of it, I didn't get to watch the first set. Um, maybe happily because I'm a big fan. Um, but uh, uh, when I was watching him and he was throwing some of those weird drop shots and they were not working, he he wanted to get them so close to the net. He was missing a, a few of them on the net even not even getting to the other side, and he just felt lost. He felt like Djokovic didn't know what to do, which is, is understandable given the level of Nadal, but at the same time, he was... He seems like he couldn't find a solution to, to himself. He couldn't find what was wrong, and he just seemed so lost and desperate within his own mind. He seemed to be not thinking clear at all in, in that match, and maybe the first serve percentage being so low had something to do with it. Maybe his game was off, and here and there in parts that he's normally not off and uh, maybe that caused him to to not necessarily play his best match and uh when when we finally got the break back in uh in that in that third set what i thought to my head was well we finally get a match now maybe because the way things are going i can still sense that nadal is probably going to close it off in uh, in, in three we may have a chance to be to see a fourth but that's just only a big maybe. That's that was my feeling at that point. And Nadal, obviously, as we all know, at this point, just made made it through in in seven five. And yeah, Djokovic seemed uh, when he held the game after the break back uh, for for three, I believe. Um, yeah. He he pulled off like a, a nice serve and volley, served out wide uh, to the at forty fifteen and serve and volley, and just had a had a nice volley, a nice touch. He seemed to be getting getting something working for him. And then it just stopped again. He just fell flat again. He just like running and just kind of um, stumbled again, and then just fell, fell fell flat to the ground. You can't you yeah. can't spot him a two set lead like that. And and it, it, he had lost a couple of close sets to go down two sets to love. He lost those sets six four seven six something like that, and then managed to make his move in the third and get a lead. He would have actually believed he might be able to win the match. I don't think he really believed he could come all the way back. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that ha- that was a factor late in the third, is that he'd made his stand and he kind of hoped he could maybe steal the set. But he, he wasn't believing. And he wasn't believing it was going to mm-hmm. lead him to any kind of a victory in the fourth set. So right. he was in a very negative fra- frame, frame of mind. There's no doubt about that. And to, let's face it, Rafa had a lot to do with it, with the brilliance of his performance, because he wasn't really giving Novak any openings whatsoever. And he was right. And and I want to mention also, Andre mentioned the drop shots. I think some of those drop shots, uh, I think in the tournament, he had almost an 80% success rate with the drop right. shot. And some of those opponents, like even Sitsipas and Pablo Carreño Busto, they weren't able to do what Nadal is able to do when he gets to those drop shots, which is flick it cross court with and have such good net coverage there that that I thought he was moving and sliding to it perfectly. He was reading it. I think he made a huge adjustment, Nadal, by moving in. His court position was at least five feet inside, the uh, closer to the baseline than what it is normally. He was aware. I think right in the first game, Djokovic had four drop shots. He had he had a 40-15 lead. There was a deuce game where he, the, the first game of the match, he had two overhead smashes that, you know, he'd yeah. win those points against a lot of a lot of players. I didn't think they were like particularly. They were nervy overheads. They weren't clinical by any means, but they weren't. You know, they were points that he would have won against a lot of other players. And so I think it was a combination of like him being pretty flat emotionally and him not not able to find that gear until that third set. Which in that third set, I always felt like he was playing high risk tennis. He was. He didn't have as much margin that he normally has. I, f- I felt like it was. At at best, we were going to see him take the third in a tiebreak. It would be like a six-two or six-three fourth set. That's oh, what, that I was totally, my sense I of totally. it. But what shocked me, Steve? What shocked me was that Nadal didn't get tied at all in that last game because he didn't. Djokovic didn't put up any kind of resistance. It was a love game. He had an ace on championship point. My mind immediately thought, you know, maybe there's a chance Novak, you know, gets something going here, and then maybe. If you remember that 2013 semifinal match that everyone talks about, which I think is the best match Novak's ever played against Rafa, even though he beat him two years later. In that match, in that yeah, fourth uh, set, Rafa served for it at 6-5. He had 30 love. And it, right. and we may not have seen a fifth set classic if, you know, Nadal didn't, you know, maybe tighten up a little and Djokovic didn't bring yeah. it to another gear. So that was surprising to me that he couldn't find it, especially mm-hmm. even in that last game. And those two errors that he made to give the break at 5-all. One forehand unforced mm-hmm. error, one backhand unforced errors. And, off of, and the point before that, he'd actually hit a beautiful overhead smash, 105 miles per hour. 
Well, yeah, but listen, it, it, mm-hmm. I, I, it, Novak ended up double folding that game away. Which right, was, right. But, yeah. It made no sense. He's going down the tee, not really going for an ace down the tee. He wasn't even hit that hard. You got to give yourself some margin on that. No, he just, he, uh, Andre said it well. You know, he wasn't thinking that clearly that day. And uh, he was a bit shell shocked by the. Now, a couple of quick things about the drop shotting. It, yes, it, it, it worked beautifully against everybody else, and he had the success rate. And what, But he also was he was backing it up better, too. He would anticipate the next move. Like With Rafa, and, and the drop shots were good enough that I don't think those guys really had a chance to flick them cross-court because they were, most of those drops were executed so well. They were low enough that when they got to the ball, Novak knew they were going down the line. He'd move in and hit those lob volleys wow, over yeah. them. And those were beautiful, beautifully executed, you know, lob volleys. And then he'd take over the net. With Rafa, I don't think he executed as well. And I I think he might have been, should have tried a few more cross court instead of down the line. But the bottom line is he just shouldn't use as many. It was clear that Nadal had done his homework and was ready for it and kind of sensed when he was going to do it. So go back to the way you've always beaten him in the past, which is to really, you know, your depth, flattening the ball out, good depth off the back end three or four in a row, switch to the down the line. And and he's always had the ability, even with Rafa's improved back end, Novak has been able to match him with his cross-court forehand. None of that was there in, in that day. And and Nadal understood it fully and capitalized on it comprehensively. But so that hence the one-sided result. Yeah. I mean, Just a quick note on the, the, you mentioned the 2015 match that Djokovic beat Nadal in that match. Honestly, I, I don't, it's not that I don't count that one, but, it's it was almost like a reversal of today. Nadal on that day he was he was basically no match for for Djokovic at the level that he was at that point, coming back from uh, years of in, of a year of injury. So um, yeah, I, I would still th- say that 2013 was probably the the best uh, barometer of match that we can say for those two at the level that they can play at Rolling Arrows oh, together. That was an ep- yeah, that was an epic. And Djokovic, you know, after coming out of the corner that that Vance described there, when Rafa could have closed him out in four, uh, Djokovic had that you know serving up a break four three in the fifth and touched the net on that overhead. Oh yeah. So that was a crushing. Blow, but he played a brilliant match, much better. I agree with you about 2015, Andre. That that Djokovic was was it was one of his great seasons. He was in the finals of all four majors. Yeah. He won three of them. Lost this one to Stan Wawrinka, but he uh, he knew he was going to beat him that day. And and interestingly enough, as discouraged as Djokovic looked on this occasion, those first two sets, Rafa admitted that he essentially gave up in the third set. Djokovic beat him five yeah. three and one. He basically gave up in the third set and admitted it. The only, in the... Ever, the only time you'll ever see Rafa do that, yeah. I think. So, the only time. so just, these guys, they, we're, we're, you know, you see in both instances that, you know, they're human. You know, you don't expect yeah. these things to happen, but they, they're human beings. Yeah, the other thing I want to talk about is that that first set, I feel like it was a mistake by Djokovic to go for the drop shot right away. I think he should have kept it in his in his back pocket. But but yeah. I think he went for too many. Like if you look at actually the first set, it was a forty-five minute six love set. It was a very competitive set. The Djokovic yeah, was actually yeah. winning the longer rallies. He won the the rallies that went nine plus shots. He won them nine yeah. to eight in that set. And yeah. he had he had love for he had a forty love game on his serve which he couldn't hold. Yeah. He had yeah. he had those he had those chances. So I feel like you know as much it was a it was a very close kind of first four or five games that I, I honestly feel like two or three of those games should have gone to Novak. What do you think? About it. That's what I was saying earlier. There's no, and you know, it's particularly harmful to him to let the first one get away from 40-15. He went for all those drop shots. I agree with you that it would have probably made more sense to hold back on it. I think yeah, he yeah. thought set the tone right away and say to Rafa, "What are you going to do about this? Try to stop me." And and it actually did work a couple of times on his way to 40-15. But then then it really let him down, and he should have been quicker to react to it. And there also I have some friends who believe that. He also he lost some rhythm by hitting so many drop shots. Then when he really wanted to crack the two-hander, you know, he didn't have the same rhythm that he that he might normally. I think there's something to that. He, he, he would see this. He would see this all very very clearly by watching the tape. But Nadal, what's fu- what's fun about this is it just makes their next couple of matches really intriguing. I mean, what happens if they meet in the hard courts in Australia? You know, I mean, it's a totally different court and setting. This is Novak's court. This is where Novak's won eight titles, and Rafa only has the one. So it's a totally different 
situation, but will Rafa's confidence uh, be significantly improved uh, as a result of this win, which will probably be the last time they'll play this year. I don't think Nadal's going to end up going to London, Paris and London. I, I, I'd be really surprised if he decided to do that. So most likely, they couldn't meet before Australia, and they couldn't meet before the finals of Australia. So that would be fascinating if they were to meet there. Yeah. Why would you say that he's not going to, to London, by the way? I'm just curious about that one. Well, because... He traditionally, he's never won the tournament, and he doesn't like yeah. playing indoors particularly. Hardcore's indoors, takes a lot out of his body. And I think he, he, I, he said in the press conference he hadn't decided one way or another, but I don't think he's going to feel like he's really going to catch Djokovic for the number one ranking. He trails him by nearly 2,000 points right now. Yeah. And with this new system where that you can count, like Rafa didn't have to win. He could have counted last year's French. He couldn't gain points. He really couldn't lose them this year, and in a sense, he could have just... It's complicated with what they decided to do with the rankings, mm -hmm. but that only increases Djokovic's chances of holding on to number one. So Rafa would not even have that as a sort of a, an addition, yeah. a, as a, another plus. And then in yeah. mind, I don't think he feels confident about winning the tournament. It's not just Djokovic. He'd have to deal with Sispidis and team and Zarev and a lot of guys that are capable of beating him indoors. Med Medvedev nearly did last year, and he could again. So the, I just feel like he might feel like the lesson he learned from this was he was gone for all basically six months before Rome. He loses to Schwartzman in the quarters of Rome, then comes to the French and wins it for the fourth time without losing a set. So I think what it told him, he's learned more and more that he used to think he had to have a lot of matches and a lot of preparation. And he's discovered at this stage of his career, after all the matches, years and years and years, that he, do, he doesn't. That, that, that yeah. if he's in shape and practicing, that he can play his way into form very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. I think oh, I was thinking almost like a, just, just, Fanch? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I just wanted to make a last comment on that one because I was actually thinking the, quite the opposite almost the other day. Maybe obviously you, you might have a more, more insight as well in that one, but uh, I thought maybe that would be one of Nadal's good chances of winning on London if he wants that title because I thought, well, he's not going to have that much match, that many matches. He's definitely not, um, his body is not as worn out as he were in the past few years. He's made the finals once or twice. And I thought maybe there's a good chance for him. I think if he, if he wanted to consider the tournament, I think he would be in good physical shape at least for, for that. But yeah, maybe, maybe he got a point there in the sense that like maybe he doesn't have enough, uh, um, all the things are maybe not pointing together uh, for him to play in this tournament and feel confident about the win. But uh, yeah, yeah. If I were in his place, I probably would have given it a shot. Well, At least uh, this one last time. One thing, well, listen, one thing that he said in the one thing that he, Nadal said in the press conference was the the fact that he's worried about the quarantine situation in Australia that the players have to uh, quarantine yeah. for two weeks, so their season would be cut short. Uh, and the you know year end finals is like uh, towards the end of November, so I feel like he 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 might think that it's best to rest up and maybe shoot for that second Australian Open title that he's been so close to, you know, many times he's lost four heartbreaking finals there. And and so I think, you know, year-end finals, you're right, though. I, I, you know, I mean, he's a much better indoor player, I think, certainly now than he was in, than he was uh, a few years ago, the reason being his new aggressive game. I think, you know, last year, uh, last year he was unfortunate in the World Tour finals. He got hurt uh, against uh, Shapovalov. He had to pull out of, of Paris, and so that ruined his rhythm, and then he didn't quite have a great ATP finals. That first match, he lost to Zverev, and he went 2-1 and one in round robin, but then, man, he played so well in the Davis Cup finals, which was indoors, and if you add clay to that, it's like he's virtually unbeatable, so I think... Wow, the clay is a... The, the adding clay is a big deal. No, yeah. I, I... Don't get me wrong. I, I actually agree with... I understand both of your points, Bonch, talking about his, his, the, the aggression that makes him better indoors now. And Andre, your point about maybe it being finally a chance to win it. I just feel like his decision is going to be more, look, I got number one last year. It's really a long shot that I could take it away from Novak, but he'd have to do badly in London. I'd have to win it. And he, I think he's going to feel like he wants to save it for Australia. And Vonch's point is mm -hmm. so well taken because Rafa wins that title in 2009 in five sets, that five-set beauty against Federer. And then, you know, look what happens after that. You know, he, he had some tough luck. He had some injuries. He lost the epic to Novak, the five-hour 53 match, a 53-minute five-setter to Novak after leading 4-2, 30-15 in the fifth. And, 
And then he loses to Stan when his back was hurt against Vavrinka in 14. He hurt his back in the warm-up. He was never right. He was a big favorite. He'd never lost to Stan. He loses that one, and then he loses the finals to Roger in 17 after being up 3-1 in the fifth. So he's had terrible luck in not being able to achieve a second Australian. And so I would think that the training and staying away from Paris and London would, would put him in better stead. I think that's how he's going to look at it. But he may look at yeah. it you are it's 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 a little hard to predict right now my my feeling is if i'm if i was his advisor is i'd say get ready for australia yeah, I, yeah. I totally agree with you i'm i'm glad we yeah, yeah. i'm glad we had that discussion there's one other thing about djokovic that strike me in that tournament before we move on and talk about some other players i think the uh, return position really surprised me he was standing so far back behind the baseline i'm not used to seeing djokovic stand so far back on the return i mean he has one of the great, best returns of all time. He usually steps in. He takes that ball early on the rise. He stands. He gets that. He's able to protect that Rafa wide serve on the outside so well. And I just think uh, he wasn't so clear about his returning this whole tournament, not just in the Nadal match, but just it, it surprised me that he wasn't taking that serve away from from Nadal many times. Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, Jim Courier discussed that a lot on the air uh, during the tournament, and he wasn't really criticizing him. He was talking about him moving further back and the fact that Rafa does that too. But for Novak, he's a totally different kind of returner from Rafa. Rafa wants to get the return back into play. If he can get really good depth on the second serve return, he's happy. But he's not. Novak is the really aggressive, you know, he can play really right. aggressive returns and take them early. He doesn't always hit them hard, but the image I have of him always is taking those back in returns, even some of them getting up a bit high, but really early from up on the baseline, sending it deep down the middle and putting the server under immediate pressure. Immediate. It's not a winning return, but he either wins, sets up the point there or forces the error because the return gets back on the server so fast. And by standing back further, he was denying himself. And actually, I think it hurt him against Cispitus because all yeah. those Breakpoint opportunities in the fourth, some of the returns he was hitting were landing so short that Cispedes was able to step into the court and take control. I've got to believe that Djokovic, along with Marian Vida and Ivan Isovic and his team, will take a look at that now and say, no, we're going to go back. Let's go back to the old formula. It, it's puzzling to me that some, because the, they were talking about it and Courier was making the case that maybe Rafa is the best returner. And I don't think so. I think Djokovic is the best returner. Rafa may be the best able to break serve even more than anybody, maybe even slightly more than Novak, but Djokovic is the one who does the most damage right off the return. But he can't do it from that far back. Yeah, I mean, so you said it really well. Uh, I want to talk about Stefanos a little bit, because I feel like uh, his journey has been very interesting the past, since the COVID break. You know, he loses that heartbreaker to Borna Choric, blows, blows six match points, completely devastating loss. You know, in some ways, many people were thinking he might react the same way he did against when he lost that epic match against Stan Wawrinka last year in the round of 16, where, you know, he just wasn't the same for like four months. He he let that loss linger so long, basically until a post-US Open. He had a good indoor swing, but up until then, he really didn't. And then, you know, he goes to Rome and he loses to Yannick Sinner uh, in the first round. And, you know, at that point, that's not a very major, major loss, but you can see he's kind of getting over that. That, that lost slowly but surely. And then he goes to Hamburg and he's 5-3 up against Rublev and doesn't close him yeah. out. So you're wondering, boom, there might be some more scar tissue left. And then they have no break, both Rublev and Tsitsipas. They go and they play one day later at, at Roland Garros. And they both come back from two sets to love down in their first match. Right. And then Tsitsipas, and, right. then Tsitsipas uh, you know, saves the has that great match against Rublev in the quarters. As you know, he came back from 5-3 down in that first set. And then really made Rublev look a little bit one-dimensional with the with the options Tsitsipas has in his game and the variety, and he was really able to impose himself. And I thought uh, in the Djokovic match, um, when we got to that third set, I thought Djokovic made a big mistake in that game at 5-4. He was serving, he was having a lot of success in big points serving to the Tsitsipas backhand because I feel like Tsitsipas' backhand return is one of his major, uh, is one of those weak areas in his game that he can definitely shore up. And uh, and I think in that game, in that 5-4 game, if you picked up on, he served a lot of returns uh, on the outside. He served a couple to the forehand, and he went back 
from that tactic, which was working so well. So that surprised me a little bit. And then Sitsipas was able to claw back and save all those breakpoints in the fourth set, exact role reversal of what happened in the first two sets, where he was the one with the chances, and then Djokovic was coming back at him. So it was just a fascinating match. And then I think it, he had a lot of success in the fourth set with those down-the-line backhands. He was really able to uh, attack. That, and that was, that was great. Was, the down-the-line backhand was beautiful. But I, I do think that... I just see it slightly differently. Yes, he, he was better off to serve to Sisyphus' backhand, but also serve, spot serve, go down, the, get it close to the lines. And, he, and yeah. he closed out the second serve with three aces in a row. I expected to see a little bit more of that, where he really found the corners and was deceptive. He didn't do that. Match point, he did serve to Sisyphus' backhand, but it, but he, did, he, he, he made that error off the backhand. And uh, I just think that whole game, he was tight. He was tight. But to get back, to, we, we talked about Novak. The, to get back to Stefanos, yes, it was a very encouraging tournament. For all the reasons you cited, to come out of that harrowing experience at the Open and blow the six match points in a very acrimonious match. And, mm. and, and then to go to, to lose to Sinner and then to have the frustrating loss to Rublev. And then this time he turned the tables because he had yeah. five, the third, as you said, this time he was up, he was down 5 3, as you mentioned, and should have right. lost set because uh, Rublev played a terrible game serving for the set just made a four horrible errors to let him back in then from that point on Sispidis played beautifully so yeah it was a big step in the right direction and he proves to himself that his game translates well to any surface to be in the semis of the French and go five sets with Novak uh, I, I'm very encouraged you know that he's going to move on from this nicely and we, you know, we're, that next year he's a, he's going to be a threat at all of them again, and he, he's uh, he he rebounded really well from from New York. I think uh, one of the things that you when you mentioned that uh, his game translates well into all surfaces. Uh, one thing that I've been hearing a lot, and I've got a little bit uh, to to observe a, a bit of that against his match uh, in his match against Djokovic is how maybe on clay uh, he has a little bit more time to set up his backhand. So he can actually whip it and like um, maybe focus a little bit more and like uh, maybe place it uh, well because uh, one of the main difference, uh, for example, in terms of a, a game like uh, Tsitsipas is more similar to a Roger Federer than to a team, um, and whereas team has like a, a lot of whip and he just uh, blasts their backhand, he just hits through it, and Tsitsipas is more like a like a, a feel, like a touch uh, uh, player. And he plays with that backhand with a little bit more um, finesse, if you will, uh, and. It, it was really interesting to see that he he could use that to his advantage instead of just kind of blocking uh, backhands uh, and using pace from the opponents, but actually setting up his backhand well, uh, even if it's a one-handed on clay, which is in itself a bit of an ad in a, a disadvantage in today's game. But um, he was able to pull off uh, quite well in, in adapting his his style of game to clay in, in that regard. I, I think it was quite an interesting uh you know tactics that he chose could again i'm totally in accord and it is much more like fetters than teams and you know his forehand was it was a big weapon too and he was constructing yeah. the well and serving well yeah he played he had a terrific tournament i mean vanch mentioned the crucial day was the first round down two sets to love but when yeah. he got out of that he really played well it was a great effort i think None of those guys, they don't really want to be in that position, but they don't know that they're going to be in the finals of Hamburg. They're just playing the tournament. Ideally, yeah. you would lose, you'd lose in the quarters and have a few more days, but they both paid the price, and actually, Rublev was very lucky to get out of the Sam Query match because yeah. Sam had him two sets to love and serve for the match in the third and, and, uh, right. and lost it. So uh, they, both did, they, they both did well to be facing each other in the quarters like that. Yeah, and I also thought in the fifth set, Sitsipas's legs completely gave out. Like yeah. I saw uh, yeah. against Djokovic in the fifth yeah, set. Definitely. I thought he had completely nothing left because he held, he held for one love. And then I, you know, I was thinking to myself, if Sitsipas is healthy, I think he can make this fifth set a contest. I would have still given the edge to Djokovic. I, I would have said probably 6-4 yeah. Djokovic, but not 6-1 yeah. because he wasn't even running down a lot of the drop shots anymore. He, looked, he was grimacing in between points, I think. Uh, he's actually pulled out of some indoor events because of some leg injury that he was he was having, and so it's very impressive that he was even able to get it to a fifth. Yeah, he mentioned the injury. Where I admire him is that he talked about how it was something that originally had the problem in Rome, whatever right. the injury was. But then he went out of his way to talk about how great Djokovic is, 
too often we have somebody mention an injury and then they there's nothing else. It's like that's why I lost the match, and he made it very clear that's not why he lost the match. So, uh, but he's wise. If it's still lingering, he should he should pull out of those events. He's got he wants to he doesn't want to wreck his chances for Australia either. Yeah, and I wonder if, uh, for example, maybe his uh, his lack of going deep into uh, slams, which are now the only best of five sets aside from the Davis Cup. Uh, maybe maybe that um, amount of uh, uh, amount of hours, and even with this condensed season that we've gotten through COVID, uh, the pandemic, I think it may have been a little bit of a factor in terms of the TC Paz maybe getting more adapted to playing long matches um, over a long span of time, and I think it could have costed him. Like if he if he were to come back in the in the second set instead and yeah. driving into uh, maybe maybe getting into like a two one lead. I think he was more likely to win that one if it wasn't in four rather than in five, I think. But again, yeah. tremendous effort to, to bring it. When the match was a two sides to love Djokovic, I thought this was over. But, but then he just proved us all from wrong. From the standpoint of Djokovic, I, I honestly believe it was funny. He, The stuff that went on in the first set against Nadal, Vonch, all this, the, the opportunities we talked about that he wasted, the 40-15 in the first game, the 40-11 in the fifth game, Break points on Nadal's serve once. Do it was a carryover from the carry. It was because yeah. how Novak has match point at five four in the third against Cispedes. Then he has yeah. then he has love thirty to to break it again. Doesn't then he's thirty love on his serve. He doesn't hold, even make the tie break. And then that pattern really did continue all the way through the fourth with all those break points. And he he really should, could have broken them in every single game and did not. And So part of that was his fault, no doubt about it. Yeah. And I think that was bugging him too, by the way. I think that, again, the, the emotional side, the mental side, and, and, and he was aware that he had done that and didn't like it and maybe he had trouble wiping it out of his mind as opposed to if he serves out the match at five point and third, maybe he would have gone into the Rafa match in a better frame of mind. Nobody really asked him about that, but I, I believe that was a factor. Yeah, it's true. Even though it was just 45 minutes longer than the Diego... And Nadal match, I think you're right. Him yeah. being second on, I think, makes a big difference. And then right. him, you know, not really... Because he, he finished the match at 10.30 Paris time. So he really just had Saturday off. Whereas Rafa had yeah. pretty much an extra day. And then so... So I think uh, psychologically it might have... And by the way, this happened in Rome when they played in 2019. In Rome as well, because Djokovic had those late nights against Del Potro and Schwartzman, and then he had to come back the next day. It was the same thing against Nadal. Six love, first set. He didn't have the spring in his legs. I just realized that just now. <laughs> But, yeah. But the, the, of course, in the Masters 1000s, it's even tougher because you have it's no... It's even deal. tougher. You're playing day oh. after day against, against uh, Juan Martin and Diego. And, yeah, no, he was... He was spent by the time he played. That was very different. There, he was very thoroughly exhausted. Here, he just was, he was fatigued and and a little worn out and a little little down on himself. I thought. Right. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about Schwartzman and Sinner. I'll start with Schwartzman. Uh, Schwartzman, the rebound that he had after he lost in the first round of the U.S. Open. He lost to Cameron Norrie. He had two sets to love up. He served for the match in the fifth. He had match points. He let that slip away, and then what a clay season he's had. He's got to the finals of Rome. He pulls off that amazing victory over Nadal in the quarters, and he backs that up in the next round. He gets to the final, and then he has this great tournament here where he beats team. So, uh, you know, what were your thoughts on that team Schwartzman match, and then uh, Schwartzman pulling that one out in five, and then the, the run that he's had here, because he almost pushed Rafa to a fourth set uh, as well in that first semifinal. So... Oh. He did. He did. He was a little. It, it was too bad for him that he, he he missed a couple of openings at the start of the tiebreak that really hurt him. And then Rafa ran away with the tiebreak, seven points to none. And uh, oh, I thought it was a great run. I thought he was going to squander his chances. He should. I, he he won the first set again. Every, he, he was up again. He'd won the first set against Team, and he and he should have won the second. And he had a re real opportunity to get to set points and missed a really easy forehand from close range and then he had set point in the third set and hit a forehand down the line long where he wasn't even going for for much so he he could easily have won in straight or at the very least been up two sets to one and then he kind of rescued himself in the fourth set and won that tie break and then glided through the fifth it was a great victory for him because team competed while well. team was definitely uh mentally spent and and you know he He knew he was in trouble, but it wasn't quite enough time to recover from the Open, and he didn't get any decent preparation, no tournaments, and 
And he he was being he was pretty honest about how he was feeling. But I thought it was a great. Yeah. Schwartzman, as you thought, he was getting so disgusted with himself in the middle of that match that he was telling his his people in his corner, his his team, to stop talking to him. They were just trying to say, get going, come on, Diego. And he was like, don't even talk to me. And, and he was so upset with himself. But I thought he really deserved that win. And maybe that, maybe even with the day off that he didn't have enough energy left for Rafa. But it was a nice third set. Nice third set. And Rafa had played some great shots at break points down at five all. To That was also a big game that kept him from going to a fourth. And I think Diego had, uh, you know... Rafa was going to avenge that loss in Rome. There was never any doubt in my mind about that. But I, I, I thought Diego made a nice, nice go of it. And I hope he can keep going. He's in the top 10 in the world now. Yeah, I mean, he can qualify for London. He's number eight. But I think the, the one thing is uh, the, about team. I, I know you said he's, he was tired and, you know, obviously the triumph of winning your first slam and then, you know, going two weeks later. And the difficult draw that he had, I mean, Chilich and then Sock and then Rude and then you get to the Gaston match. So I think... So, so one thing about that is, yes, I do think he was completely spent, but I do think he didn't help his cause because against Hugo Gaston, he could have finished that match off in straight sets. And then he had a chances to win the Schwartzman match in four. You could argue he could have won it in four and that Schwartzman could have won it in straights. So yeah, it's kind of... I agree. But I think one of the reasons why he, you know, I think it was weighing on his mind that he didn't think, he, he wasn't really sure he could, yeah. he could do it in the fifth. He, he was feeling a little pressure at the end of the fourth because he, he thought to himself, I don't have it in me to play one more set. Uh, you're right. Some of it is his own doing. He certainly should have won the Gaston match in straight. I agree with that. That would have made a bit, quite a difference. And right. then it would be interesting if he, if he had played Nadal instead of Diego. That could have been interesting. But I still don't think, I, don't think, I, I just don't think he would have been quite up to it. And, and it's too quick a turnaround when you're changing surfaces as well. So little time and so little... Uh, time to make the surface changes on top of that right and so just quickly what are your thoughts on uh, Yannick Sinner 19 years old so poised so mature uh, tears through the tournament doesn't lose any sets beats Gofan in the first round gets to the quarters and serves for the first set against Rafa and plays magnificently and then um, you know shows why he's only 19 at 6-5 in the in the first game he was two points from the first set and you know, I mean, yeah, I'm I, yeah. I'm encouraged about his prospects. I think I, I told one of my friends that I think he's going to be top ten by the end of uh, next year. Certainly in the top fifteen. I, I'm I'm fairly confident about that. If we have a full season well, next year, so. I guess we're thinking alike again because I I've been predict I, I I my prediction is he will be top ten next year. I, I'm convinced of it. He he, Nadal show. Nadal told us how good he thinks Sinner is because if you notice after he won those last two points. To break, get the break, and and uh, get back into the to the tie break, and, and knew he wasn't going to be down. I said he jumped. He made one of those classic trademark Rafa jump in the air exuberant uh, moves, right. and he only does that against people he really respects. No, Sinner is the real thing. I, I love his two hander. Pretense is going to be one of the great two handers in the game, and he, he's got a great temperament. He didn't look in awe of Rafa at any time. Uh, he wasn't overly cocky, but he was like he felt he belonged. Played a good second set, was up three-one in the second, and really it, that was tight. And mm -hmm. finally, Rafa pulled away in the third. But no, I, I don't see any reason he can't be top ten next year. And and the Cispedes win in Rome, we see now that that really was not wasn't just a question of Stefanos coming off the U.S. Open loss, but it was also how good this kid really is. And Stefanos paid him a lot of compliments as well. So I, I'm very encouraged about what he's going to do in, in, in 2021. Yeah. I, one of the things that strike me about, uh, about Sinner is how, how solid his game looks already. It's, it's so well-defined. It's not like uh, if you take, for example, a, a Shapovalov who, who likes to hit the ball really hard and like go, goes for his shots, but Sinner seems so controlled. He's going for angles, he's making shots uh, in a, in a way that you can see where he's going with it. He see, you see, what is the, the point behind the shots that he's playing? Some of the forehands that he was playing, he wasn't necessarily hitting it um, or overheating it, like, like, if you will. But like, he was trying to hit it like in, a, in the corners, trying to make a Nadal move like really a lot. And when I was seeing that, I was thinking, man, he, this guy's really got a, got a mind for tennis, too. It's not necessarily in the, in the shot, but he's, he's, really, he's really there. He's, 
He's really a player who understands the game and understands what he needs to do and understands that not every shot needs to be a winner and not every shot needs to be just a moon ball. He's just a very intelligent person. Oh, he's a great. He's already a, a really good match player and, and uh, a good, good strategist. And you're right. I mean, he has a mind. He's got the mind of a 26, 27-year-old already and a great temperament. So all of these things are going to, I think, I think my Italian journalist friends are in for some great years ahead with that, with that kid. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I think uh, one of the Italian journalists that I find really uh, interesting, he asks a lot of good questions in press conferences, and he's very, uh, he's got a good sense of humor, Ubaldo. I think uh, yeah, your father. He, he really would like... He really would like. He, he would be really encouraged what he's seeing from the Italians now with Musetti and Berrettini and Sinner. I think he's got a really a lot of good work ahead for, as a journalist. Well, Sinner is the one long term with the, who's going to do the most damage. I mean, Berrettini's going to have some good years for sure, but Sinner mm -hmm. Sinner is going to be at the top of Italian tennis very soon, in my view. But I think by the end of next year, he will have moved past Berrettini. Yeah, and there's yeah. also yeah. Musetti, who's very good. He's only he's 18, yeah. so he can do yeah. some damage too. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you something that happened earlier in the tournament. Uh, we got that first round match with uh, Murray and Vavrinka, that popcorn first round match that everyone was was talking about. Their repeat three hour that epic that they had in 2017 in the semis when they were both at the peak of their powers, and you know it turned out, and we were all anticipating a. Uh, you know, a similar kind of a match, and then that Bovrinka would then go on and face team in that round of 16 match, and it would be uh, one of those epics. Uh, what was your take? Like, you know, Murray's level uh, has been since the U.S. Open, and, you know, that he was completely outplayed. Well, I think it was one of the worst losses he's ever had uh, scoreline-wise in a, in a major, and Bovrinka just completely manhandled him. And then I think Mats Wielander, Mats Wielander made a comment afterwards that wasn't taken very well when he questioned Murray's uh, ability, when he questioned uh, Murray why is he taking all these wild, wild cards away from the young players. And I think that wasn't taken very well by a lot of people. It's, 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 it's disheartening to watch Andy now, though, I have to say. I mean, granted, he had the marathon match at the Open before losing to Felix. Uh, Felix destroyed him at the Open. And this time, uh, I, th I thought he could do a lot better than that against Stan. It was almost embarrassing to watch it. He just was blown off the court. And I, I, and now today, I see he's just lost to Verdasco yesterday. You know, it, it, it's right. not, has yeah. not been a good run for him. I, I mean, it's understandable given the, the hip surgeries and what he's been through. But I, I kind of hope he would just either play only doubles or just retire altogether. I don't, this is not. This is not going to. It's not working out very well for him. Can't blame him for trying. I don't begrudge him for asking for wild cards. In a way, if you're a former world number one and you've won three majors and and a couple of Olympic gold medals, in a way, I think you've earned it. So I don't know if I entirely agree with Matt's, but I right. don't. I don't like the way Andy is playing. I, I think he's a shell of what he was, and I don't know how much better it's going to get for him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's definitely, uh, I think the part that I agree with the most with you there is like, it's, it's disheartening. It's like really the words. It's sad to see a champion like Murray, like a player who, who was able to turn defense into attack and yeah. was just able to run down balls and make crazy shots. Uh, namely, I think 2016, a uh, match point against Djokovic, the backhand uh, down line uh, off, of a, off of an overhead. What a ridiculous shot to make. And absolutely not the, the player that he used to be, Murray, after the surgery. He did get the, the, the singles title after um, the surgery that he beat Vavrinka himself. Right. Uh, but both were coming off of injuries. Right. But yeah, at the same time, Vavrinka did have a lot more uh, leeway in terms of recovering from... And, and his game is probably less um, physical. It's way, way less physical, really, than Murray's who's really relying on defense a lot of times, and Vavrinka's really just relying on just blasting balls from the back of the court. And I think really just he's also not getting any younger. And, yeah, it's, we'll have to see what, what happens and what Murray decides. But, yeah, it's, it's just sad. I don't I, – I'll respect whatever he does, but I don't – yeah, it's, it's sad to see what, what he's been doing now uh, with his game. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see any kind of significant – I'll be pleasantly surprised if he proves us wrong, but I, I – 
I don't have an optimistic outlook when it comes to Andy and where he's headed in the game. And he'll be he'll be honest with himself. Yeah, I think what surprised me was not his move was not his uh, the way he's moving and the defensive posture and and uh, you know some of the troubles that he's having reco- recovering from these long matches. I was uh, I kind of overestimated his ability to recover after that Nishioka match at the U.S. Open, and I know yeah. he still has some good tennis that he can play at times. He beat Tiafo in Cincinnati. He beat Zverev after that. So I felt like you know he can. He can have those moments again in a 250 or a 500, but I just don't know if he can sustain that level. And I think what Mats was kind of projecting some scar tissue that he had in his own career in some way, because he was talking about how he was never the same again, and he made a big mistake by just playing and playing and chasing the tournaments. And, you know, I think some of that was in his comments uh, as well. Yeah, and that's true. That's true about himself. And Andy... Andy is a pretty realistic guy. I'm sure in the offseason he's going to really give it a lot of thought about what what he wants to do moving forward, how long he'll continue to try to yeah. see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the last player that we didn't really talk about was the number four seed, uh, Daniil Medvedev, who lost in the first round. Uh, and it wasn't shocking to me by any means because I thought uh, I thought that would happen that he would he wouldn't be able to hit through Fuksovic on a slow clay court yeah. like this. Do you think he'll ever become a good clay court player? Just the way he hits, the trajectory, the flat shots. Uh, do you think most of his success is going to come on hard courts and grass? And you know, I mean, did that surprise you the way he lost in that first round? Maybe the scores, but I I, I think I agree with you. It's going to be difficult on clay. It's it's not impossible. Uh, you know, he, he can it, his style should still work to some degree, but hard courts will always be his best. We'll see how he adjusts to the grass. Too early to tell about grass, but hard courts will always be his favorite. And maybe it was still a little bit of a hangover. That was a very bruising loss he had to team, even though he didn't win a set. He probably felt like he had he knew he had those chances and wished he could have been out there playing Zarev in the final, and he would have liked his chances against Zarev in the final too. So that may still be kind of lingering in his mind, haunting him to some degree. And then, uh, yeah, he didn't do well in the clay. Let's see now. I want to see if he can bounce back in these final hardcore tournaments of the season and how well he can do in London. And uh, yeah. he, he, he's a little enigmatic. I don't quite know what to make of Daniel at times. You know, <laughs> yeah. We had that spectacular six tournament stretch in the middle of uh, middle of to late last year and w- uh, and that's when it almost looked like he might be a threat to be number one. Uh, at least get get himself into the position where he threatened the top three and made a move. But now, I don't know. I I, yeah. I, I, I want, I'd like to see him be able to finish the year strong to set things up for for next year. And he needs some he needs some good results between now and and the end of London. Yeah, I think you're you're so right about that because I I feel like now the money is on the like that's. It's kind of uh, people. People are aware of his game now. They know exactly what it takes to, to beat him. In the sense that they know if they can, uh, give him off court, off pace shots, or they can slice it really low, or they can, uh, force him to really generate offense on his own. I feel like he doesn't. There's times where he has opportunities to move into the net and come in, and he's a great volleyer. He showed that in the in the final when he made the comeback against Nadal that he can, he can hurt you. And I I don't have any problems I, I feel like he's going to stay in the top 10 top five top eight but whether he can actually be the first guy apart from team to win i, I would place more of a chance for sitsipas to get a major uh, out of all of these guys before uh, not not name team I, i'd say i agree i agree but i i do i would like to see medvedev in the mix right and uh and in these next six you know at the end of this year and the start of next year are going to be very important for him to sort of Proved to everybody that he really belongs in that territory. He can't be in a position where he's suddenly slipping out of the top 10. And I don't expect that to happen, but he needs to prevent it. He needs to start stringing together some some good yeah. results. Yeah, he's going to yeah. have some and, chances and, this week. He's playing in St. Petersburg, and yeah. he likes that tournament yeah. a lot. Yeah. So I, I feel good about his game indoors. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I think on, on that note, I think we've covered everything. And... Uh, if you guys have any any other, I think we've covered pretty much everything that there was to see, at least in at least in the. Yeah, the one Sorry? the one person we didn't talk about was uh, was Zverev. The the well, he got sick and we, against. Uh, we're going to have to. Did you think about that? To. He said he was sick. 
I think he probably would have lost to Sinner in, uh, anyway, to tell you the truth. And, and he's underrated on clay, but I think this, the way Sinner was playing, at that result did not surprise me. But, uh, but let's hope that Zarev, again, over the course of next year, that he can put that haunting U.S. Open final loss behind him and, and start contending and put himself in a position again, get back to another final. I'd like to see it happen. But again, I have more faith in Cispedes and uh, team in Cispedes ahead of him for sure. And maybe I put him on a, on a, a, a level with Medvedev or just ahead of Medvedev. Yeah, I think, I think you said it well. Um, so I, I guess uh, that was a great, uh, great talk, Steve. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to talk about uh, Roland Garros with you and cover the post Grand Slam, uh, do a post Grand Slam podcast. It was a lot of fun. I think we covered well, a lot of ground. Thank you both for having me on. You guys both made a lot of really good observations. Always, always fun talking with you and we'll, We'll do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for for being here. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see, let's see what happens at the end of the season. And hopefully next time we'll be also talking about the the Australian Open next year, which I'm hoping so much that it happens and that it goes well. And obviously, obviously, let's not jump ahead of ourselves for the end of the season. And yeah, let's hope you enjoy the rest of the season as well, Steve. And uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks, Vanch, again for being here. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Vanch. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.